0: Here is a name you ought to know, David Lebowitz. Who's David? He's a top analyst at JP Morgan, one of the world's largest and most prestigious investment banks. And according to David, the 60 40 portfolio is changing, which means the traditional 60% stocks, 40% bond mix needs to be reimagined. Some top advisors are rewriting the 60 40 formula and putting alternatives front and center. That's right. Alternative Assets. According to JP Morgan, Bank of America, and other leading financial institutions, alternatives are no longer optional. They are essential. And today's sponsor, Masterworks, is enabling all investors to add one exciting alternative asset to their portfolios. Blue Chip Artwork. According to Citibank, contemporary art prices outpaced the S&P 500 by 164%, from 1995 to 2021. And Masterworks is the award winning investment platform that lets you diversify your portfolio with fine art in minutes for a lot less than you're thinking. I urge you to check them out, especially since contemporary art prices outpaced the S&P 500 by 164% from 1995 to 2021. Plus, Masterworks is valued at over a billion dollars, and you can't say that about very many companies today. But my listeners can skip the waitlist by going to masterworks.io slash sadtruth. Once again, visit masterworks.io slash sadtruth. See important disclosures at masterworks.io dc. Hey guys, I think uh, my latest guest now is my most frequent guest, if I'm not mistaken, either third, possibly fourth time. I know that I am his,
1: until recently, I was, was I your most frequent guest? Am I still your most frequent guest, Dave Rubin? Dad, there is an internal debate here at the Rubin Report, and we've brought in calculators and abacuses and charts and graphs as to who technically is the most time, most appeared guest on the Rubin Report. It either, and we really have to go in and truly finally figure this out, it's either you, Douglas Murray, or Jordan Peterson, depending on what we're fully counting as full interviews versus other little appearances we've Ah, done together. You, of course, did the first ever Ruben Report interview show, which was a test show before the actual debut of the show, but you were the first sort of proper interview that I ever did, which was seven years ago, my friend. I just looked this morning. Isn't that nuts? He's I still here. You posted,
0: I think, a screenshot which I yeah. comment down, and I remember so well that first chat. I remember it was at the Aura TV, uh, you know, Larry King Studios, and I came, I, 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 I crossed paths. I don't know her name, but the the lady who uh, uh, guest, not guest host, but hosts the. You're
1: the weakest link, or the weakest link. Well, what is, do you know who I'm talking about? Oh, the British woman. I don't even know her name, but she must have been a guest on Larry's show. Exactly. That
0: day. Uh, so yeah, yeah I, almost eight years ago. Okay, so that for for the three or four people who don't know who you are, I've got to put the glasses on. And unlike oh, you, very they're, professional. They're, yeah, they're not fake glasses. These are real. It just means I'm old. That's all it means. Uh, no, instead, <laughs> host of the Rubin Report. Of course, everybody knows it. Author of the previous, your first book. Don't burn this book. Thinking for yourself in an age of unreason, and then next week your follow-up book. Don't burn this country. Surviving and thriving in our woke dystopia. Did I get all that right?
1: You got all of that right. You are a true uh, professional. Can I just say one other thing, real please, quick, words, any- though, which is that seven years ago, I so I take that screenshot. I was I was in the car. Somebody else was driving. I was in the car. I took that screenshot uh, yesterday, and. You are half the man you used to be, Incredible. and I mean that in the best possible sense, <laughs> my friend. I have to say, we're, we're aging okay.
0: I, is that, is that not, no kidding. Yeah? I mean, in my case, one of the reasons, I, I mean, there are many reasons I did it, but the primary one uh, is one that you will soon know about, because I know that you're soon going to have children, is yeah. I couldn't bear the idea of not putting every single deck in the card in my favor, because you know I am an athletic person, I even though I was overweight, you know, I eat reasonably well, uh, I, I've never smoked, I don't drink. but there was this one problem, which is every year when I would go see my physician, he'd look at me and say, "Come on, man." <laughs> and so I finally said, "You know what? I'm going to keep that big fat mouth of mine closed until I reach the right weight, and I'm now at the weight that I was in 1988 size 33 pants. It's unbelievable.
1: Wow, that. That is actually incredible. No, your transformation has been amazing. And, you, you know, you can see it in your face and everything else. And then, you know, I know you know this, but you just start feeling better in yeah. general. You look in the mirror, you see something better, and then hopefully that translates into the rest of it. And it's it's a good feeling.
0: And my... And my- I don't think my wife would mind me saying this. When I was uh, differ- differently weighted, <laughs> our lovemaking sessions were quite short, in the order of about an hour to an hour and a half. But I could only go for an hour and a half, whereas now it's three hours. So you see, three hours, you're back <laughs> up. To the, I'm back to up you. to the porn level. So there you go. It's all good. Uh, okay, let's start with just what is the general premise of this latest book? How does it differ from the first one? Why did we need this second book?
1: Well, look, if the ideas of the first book, which was, you know, basically me laying out my classically liberal principles, something you know a bit about, uh, if all of those ideas had fully taken root in America, the wish the way that I wish they had, or had they fully taken root in Canada the way that you perhaps wish they had, then there wouldn't have been a necessity for a second book. Uh, But in essence, Don't Burn This Book was here are my principles. Here are the best ways that I think a society can organize and you can go about living your life. Don't burn this country really was the obvious next step in that, which is that the woke monster that we have been fighting, and I think, you know, to slightly pat us on the back, we were a little ahead of the curve on this thing. We were yelling about this stuff, you know, a long time ago before now everyone's yelling about it. Uh, it has kept moving, it has kept marching, it has infected all of the institutions, it has used its parasitic qualities, to quote your word, to infect almost every level of our societies, politically, culturally, and otherwise. And really what I felt was, as a guy that talks for a living and interviews for a living, there's an exhaustion to just talking about these things. You you definitely know what I'm talking about in this regard. You know, we can talk about these things, we can hopefully enlighten people in some way, or sometimes we can talk about people that have different views on it, and then I think my job when I'm interviewing someone is to hopefully translate that into a way that, you know, people who have regular jobs and regular lives and wanna occasionally eat some good food and get laid and lay out on the beach that they can take a little bit of it and go out and live their life. Well, this book really is, well, what do you do? What do you do? We did not stop it. It is in the house. Are there ways that you can fight against it in your own life without relying on the government without relying on the institutions, what can you do in your own life to accept that, yes, we are there, we are in a woke dystopia. We have a a Supreme Court nominee right now who does not know what a woman is, or at least refuses to say. She's not a biologist, right? Uh, Two plus two is five. Being non-racist now means you're racist. All of these things, boys or girls, girls or boys, et cetera, et cetera. How can we live in this woke dystopia and still really be actualized as people that's that's the goal with this book uh but gad my friend i suspect it is only part two of a trilogy because even despite this and i hope it's a a, you know bestseller and all that this this isn't going to stop at least yet
0: well you know i'm i'm it's interesting that you 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 talk about the the possibility of a third book because it, I, I was going to get to this later, but it, it is a good segue. So, one of the things that I talk about in my current, the current book that I'm writing, uh, the, my latest book, is about a, a recipe for the good life, using both personal anecdotes and also backed by science. I, I love that. I love that concept. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, one of the things that I talk about in one of the chapters is, uh, you know, the you know, variety seeking, right? And the, the idea that you know, for many for many pursuits in life, greater variety is good. In some cases, it isn't. And so, I discuss the pros and cons of seeking variety to enrich your life. And so applying it to what you just said, so, you know, you've cornered a a corner of the market of, you know, the culture wars where, you know, many of your guests talk about these woke issues. Your two books are about these woke issues. And, of course, it's very important that you weigh in on it. So I'm certainly not minimizing it as someone who obviously wrote The Parasitic Mind. But do you get a sense in terms of any penchant that you might have for Variety seeking to say – you know, I still want to be an author, but I don't want to be a woke author or or woke related author forevermore. I want to write about uh, Jewish history in uh, New York. Do you get that sense, or or how do you how do you navigate this?
1: I want to write the definitive book on the bagel. When they say everything, <laughs> is it all in there? Is that really the truth? um I love that question. I'm glad you asked that question. Because, you know, what happens to a lot of us that talk for a living or interview people for a living is we end up going back to our greatest hits, right? You end up just going back to those three or four things that maybe either put you on the map or are the things that you really focus on. Or you could take, you know, our friend Jordan Peterson, for example, if he only went back to the 12 rules all the time, yes, people always want to hear about it and he can always figure out maybe new ways of translating it, but you don't want to just do that. You know, when you go to the concert, well, usually they don't like when they play the new music. People do want the old yeah. hits, but for the artist, the artist always wants to put in some new stuff because they don't want to sing the ones that they've been singing for three decades, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, you know, part of what I've done over the last couple of years was I was frustrated about big tech and I was talking to people about big tech, you know, from Peter Thiel to Tucker Carlson all the way down. And then I thought, well, OK, I don't want to just talk about it. Let me do something about it. And then thus started Locals. I mean, I, I said, let me put some of this into action. I think relative to, to my writing, I do suspect this will be a trilogy in that, okay, here are my ideas, that's book one, here's how you fight it, here's book two, and book three maybe, here's how we really rebuild the new world or fully disconnect from these people or something like that. I mean, I, the future's not yet written, so we sort of have to see. Um, But there's all sorts of other things that I'm interested in. I mean, as you know, uh, my husband, David's an incredible chef. We love hosting people. I I write about that a little bit in this book. So you said you're writing a book about the good life. Like, I like the idea of of really helping other people figure out how to enjoy the good life because my life is pretty good. You know, the, the world is pretty screwy and messed up. And at a personal level, I can deal with some hate online or this or that. But I have figured out some way by fighting for what I believe in, to not only feel value in the work, but my my life is a living example of that. I su- I've surrounded myself with not only employees that that I like and admire and that work hard for me, and hopefully that brings value to them, but the the people in my extended family and everything else. So yeah, I want to find those avenues. You know, I love basketball. Am I going to write a definitive book about basketball? Probably not. Um, but there could be some other, you know. Just way into that world, or or whatever it might be, because we have to keep ourselves fresh, as you know.
0: Well, I mean, I think one of the ways that you've instantiated your own drive for variety seeking is precisely in founding locals and in you know becoming you know quote a tech guy outside of your hosting the show, uh, which I, I can understand that it's 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 intoxicating because you're always speaking to cool people, interesting people, but in a sense. You, you have carved yourself the ecosystem that allows you to wear completely different hats. And that's something that, by the way, I've done in my career because, you know, for, you know, to be a serious professor who's got a research lab, who's pumping out papers and academic books and, you know, supervising doctoral students and so on and applying for grants, that's a full time heavy super stress job in of itself, but yet I have three, four other full-time jobs that I do on the side of that. And the reason I do it is not because I'm masochistic and I'm a glutton for punishment. It's because it really caters to my drive for variety seeking. I get something from doing the sad truth that I can't get from writing a peer-reviewed paper. I mean, both are in the general area of disseminating knowledge, but you know, speaking to Dave Rubin is a different process Than doing a, you know, the third round of a paper of an incredibly complicated statistical analysis on the latest paper that I'm working on. So it is that desire for intellectual variety seeking that has allowed me to kind of nibble at all of these different buffets of, you know, life.
1: You know, with that in mind, thank you for not doing this show from under your desk. I know you spend most of your days hiding from Kamala Harris or the social justice warriors or the other oppressive figures in our society. So thank you for coming up. But, you know, joking aside, on the locals front, when I started doing that, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was just like, you know, we were all complaining about big tech. And I thought, well, there's some stuff that could be built, I think, that might be able to reverse some of this we should own our own videos and audio and we should own our user data and be able to communicate directly with our people and have a cool app and live stream. And I just started doing it. And then suddenly, when you talk about variety, suddenly I was in all these VC firm offices pitching. And when you're pitching to these people, well, what's the key part of it? You have to be able to communicate the ideas so that they'll write you the checks. And trust me, I went into, I don't know, 200 VC firms or you know incubators or whatever they are And, you know, you get a lot of no's or a lot of people don't even bother responding, but then some yeses start trickling in. You get one node of a yes from one guy who turns out to be a connector to five other people. And then next thing you know, the dam breaks. So I realized that all the skills that I had learned and been refining through this show and conversations started really working in that. And the truth is that until we did the merger with Rumble that we did about six months ago or so, most of the last two years of my life, believe it or not, because people only see me on the Rubin Report or on the public side of what I do, but most of the work that I was doing on a day-to-day basis, that if we were just compounding the hours, was actually dedicated to getting locals going. So I'm very proud that we actually built something. It's now merged with a company that I think has an incredible future in front of it. And hopefully, it actually does solve a problem. So it's it's pretty cool if you just try something, maybe it'll work.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, this not to use this chat to promote my next book because we're here to talk about. But you know, it's 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 happening organically. Yes. Uh, So one of the things that I talk about in in the the next book is uh, you know the two most important decisions that you will make that will either impart great. Uh, joy in your life or great misery is choosing the right spouse and choosing the right job because most of your waking time is and in some cases your sleeping time if it's your spouse is spent in one of those two conditions so if you choose wisely to the extent that you can choose wisely then you're already well on your way to either living a miserable life or a happy life and when i talk about choosing the right job one of the things that i argue is choose a profession that allows you to create But I define create in a very, very broad sense. So a chef is creating, he's taking a bunch of ingredients, he, he or she is giving you a plate that for a moment gives you some hedonic pleasure. That was an act of creation. An architect is creating something. A painter is creating something. Now in your case, and certainly in mine, you're creating new content. Until you came along and held that chat, someone could not consume that content. You're creating a new platform. So I tell people that the the most direct path to having purpose and meaning in life is to engage the act of creation. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, listen, I know I'm talking to my at least mostly atheist friend. But, you know, that that God character from the Bible, he created. And then what did he do on the seventh day? He rested. So whether whether people believe that literally or metaphorically or as an allegory, whatever you want to describe that as that idea that we are here and we can actually create something new, whether it's an idea that then, hopefully a good idea that can spread properly as opposed to a parasitic idea, or whether it's that you create a new widget, like literally a new physical thing that, like anything, it's a construction piece that's a piece of pl- you know plastic that had never been done before and suddenly people can build new things, or a technological service or whatever it might be, that humans can create is the most extraordinary thing about us actually. It's, it's what separates us, you know, that thinking in essence is what separates us from the animals for the most part, obviously certain primates can think in a, in a certain sense. Um, and people always tell me dogs are very smart. They're very smart. Although Clyde's gone a little banana since we've been living in Florida, the, li- the lizards everywhere are freaking him out. He's, <laughs> he's nuts down here. But um, that idea of creation and that you can express yourself somehow, whether it is you're a chef or you're a talker, you could be a landscaper yeah. and shape the plants in a certain way that then bring some joy to the people whose house that you're working on. I mean, there's so many ways to do that. A painter, et cetera, et cetera. Obviously, that if you can figure out a way to get a little of whatever it is in you yeah. out there into the world, and maybe it can't be your job, right? Maybe you have a very, very technical job yeah. or you're a coder who has to do a very specific thing. Well, OK, then that's not the most creative thing. But there's all other ways to do that. You know, a basketball player or whatever, you know, you're more of a soccer guy. Uh, you know, it's like you can be an artist on the field too. Yeah, absolutely. A guy, a guy like Steph Curry, I think, is a great example yeah. of this. He plays basketball in a way that is art. You watch this guy. He's inventing a new way to play that. He takes shots that 10 years ago you would have been like, you'll be kicked out of the league in a minute for taking these crazy shots. And he hits them. It's a new way of doing it. Michael Jordan had a new way of doing something. Uh, so there's all sorts of ways that you can do that. And I think if you do that, then you inspire all sorts of other people. I mean, look at look at a guy like Kobe Bryant. Who, man, of all the people that we've lost for all the wrong reasons in recent years, he was he was so extraordinary. Not just as a player, but even in his retirement, still with drive and passion and yeah. doing so much good. But Kobe Bryant, if you watched him play, he his moves were a model after Michael Jordan. They looked exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. the same, but then he also had a different aggressive way that that Jordan was a little bit, their temperament was a little bit different. That's a beautiful thing. If, man, you can go, there's somebody that does something, and that's kinda like what I wanna do, and I can take some of that, and now I can add some of my own stuff and create something new, that's what it's all about. What do you think, uh, I mean, what
0: you know, I set out to be a professor so there was a very clear trajectory I have to get a PhD I have to get a professorship and so on so while the specific field that I might study could have varied but there was a clear trajectory of what I need to do to reach the ultimate goal of having an academic life in your case you didn't set out to be you know a a host of a popular talk show and so on uh if you now had to replay the, the tape of your life so far, you're still a young man, but you know, you're almost, I guess you're mid, we can say midlife, correct? You're I'm 40- 45, man. You're,
1: I guess I'm smack dab in the middle of this. You're thing 45. Right
0: now. Uh, there you go. Uh, how would, you know, the sliding door thing, how would it have replayed? Would you now be a superstar stand-up comic? That was your original interest. Would you be acting? Would you be, I mean, of course you'd be playing basketball. I know you love that. But what, yeah. how would your life have been different, have the, had the right chips through serendipity not fallen where they did?
1: You know, it's interesting. I, uh, When we moved, I went through some old boxes and I found my high school yearbook and I just started flipping through it and seeing what people were writing about me. And almost everyone, I mean, I'm not kidding. I saw 30 comments, something to the effect of you will host The Tonight Show or you will be a late night comedian, something like that. You know, you're gonna replace uh, Letterman. It was a lot of that kind of stuff. And so I guess in some ways this was always, This was always going to be now. Did I know it was going to be that I was going to be on something called YouTube and I was going to suddenly be, you know, touring with, you know, Jordan Peterson, this Canadian psychologist talking about fixing your life and, you know, friends with you and all of these weird things. Of course, you don't know all of these things. But I think actually by all I really did when I got out of college. And I said, I, my friends were all funny. Everybody was funny. That's how we communicated with each other. It was a language that we all had with each other. It was obvious to me that someone was gonna be a comic. And I was like, I'll be a comic. And I lived that life, 12 years in New York City, six nights a week, often standing out on the street corners for hours, rain nor sleet nor snow, to just give out the tickets so you could work for free, so I could have another you know, meal job during the day, so I could maybe get a little bit better. And look, I never got the HBO special, But I never, but as the more I did it, I kind of didn't want it anymore. I saw the world shifting. I saw the online world developing. I saw a lot of really great comics, the guys that were really the best that quit because the business is really horrible and it's very, in almost any business, it's very hard to do something truly original and they just couldn't take the pain. I saw guys that kind of sucked, but worked really hard, become very successful. And then there's every version of that, right? Every which way you can paint that. And some of it's luck, I suppose, and I suppose, and whatever else it might be. But I guess looking back on the whole thing, I'm pretty much sitting in the exact spot, and I mean that literally right now, in the exact chair, in the exact room in my house, that's my studio, uh, talking to a friend and colleague who I respect about ideas that I care about, uh, with a, a coworker here who, who I like and admire and who does great work for me in a, in a house that I am proud to be able to afford, married to the person that I love, with a dog I love, with kids on the way. I mean, it really did come together nicely. And of course, the rest of it's not written yet. Um, but I think that's only, I think this is what you're really asking. That's only because I just kind of kept going. I, I just, there were meant. trust me, there were a lot of moments when things, you know, would fall apart. Or when David and I got to LA, we had about a thousand bucks in our pocket, believe it or not, about a thousand bucks in our pocket to combine. And there were moments when, when there was debt, you know, I'm proud to say I have no debt. Our businesses are successful and thriving. And we just kind of kept going. And, and when those weird moments, you know, you have those moments in life where the road presents itself, the fork presents itself, when I didn't want to be at the Young Turks anymore, but it was a risk, David and I both had salaries and health insurance from them, but I said, we gotta go and we left. And then I was at Aura TV and I really loved it over there, but I felt that I I could be bigger than what was going on there. And David, I and our producer at the time, we all left again, left our jobs and our salaries and our health insurance left. Then after doing it independently for a little bit, I didn't want to be on Patreon anymore where I was making 80% of my money, but I didn't like what they were doing. So we dropped that, and I started my own subscription thing, which ultimately became Locals. But I didn't know the next day if I was going to have any money or a job or anything else. As a matter of fact, the night uh, that we were about to launch what eventually would become Locals, my subscription network, I, had, I told David and my, uh, my producer, Amira, I said, I may have screwed this up. I may have just ruined all of our lives. I'm not kidding, guys. Uh, we were sitting at Shake Shack, and that's what I, I said. I may have screwed us all Irreparably, and I said I said, Amira, I'm married to him, so you know, he'll have to deal with it. But if I if I screwed you here, I really do apologize in advance. And within two hours, once we launched at eight AM the next morning, we knew we were good. And then I took a risk by by turning that company into locals, and I took a risk by publicly supporting Trump, which cost me friends that you know. not yeah, sure. Um, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not even saying any of that to pat myself on the back. I'm just saying that if you if you listen to yourself enough and you and you think things through enough I think you'll mostly make the right decisions and when you do it horrifically wrong, when it goes really horribly awry, then you reevaluate. Otherwise yeah. keep going. Keep going. Well,
0: I mean again there's several threads here that I can take that relate to, you know, what I'm talking about in my next book. So you clearly you're persistent clearly you're courageous but also as you said you listen to incoming information that you have good instincts in terms of your timing right there is a point at which it becomes costly to continue with the inertia that you have right yes and and and, and believe me i'm facing it and here i mean i'm maybe opening myself up uh, in a public uh, context look i'm a in my dna it is inscribed that I am a professor. It is part of my identity. It's what goes through my veins. But even someone like me who was made to be a professor, I, as you know privately, we've talked about this, I question at this point whether this is the best use of my time, not because I've lost interest in the research part of academia, but all of the other baggage that comes with being an academic is becoming difficult. Now, in my case, it's a bit more difficult to kind of I'm not just leaving the young Turks and not to not to No no I got, minimum, you. I got right I got. I'm leaving a big you know full professorship at a leading business school after 30 year career and that's, that's a difficult trade-off because it's the golden handcuffs of tenure. It guarantees you a big salary forevermore. But then there are all of these other songs and sirens that you're hearing in the background that you're saying, you know, should I be instantiating those opportunities? So it's a very difficult calculus to navigate through.
1: Look, Ed, you're you're also, I think, respectfully, I think you're forgetting the biggest part, which is that you also have two young children. That's it. it. it, For for the time that I was able to make these decisions, you know, as you know, we're having kids. Thank you for saying that. Yes. But but that really is the truth. It's not that you could just pick up and say to your wonderful wife, like, let's get going and let's do this. And but you know, you also said the phrase "golden handcuffs," and that's what they become. So that's you know, I know you grapple with this. We talk about it privately all the time. It's 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 a very tough thing. And, you know, when I was on tour with Jordan Peterson and I moderated the Q&A with him, a lot of the questions that people would ask him were roughly about something like this. Because a lot of people were very upset at their work situation or they didn't feel fulfilled or it didn't turn out to be what they wanted, whatever it might be. And they would say, should I just quit? They would always, the the question was always the same. It was this long thing and then it was, should I just quit? And I think what a lot of them wanted Jordan to say was, yes, just quit and go. Except everything that you're explaining right there is that you can't just yeah. quit just like that. You have to really think it through. Who is Who am I responsible yeah. for? How much money do I have? What is my runway to figure out the next thing? Do I have any freaking clue as to what I might want to do on yeah. the other side? Um, do, do, will I lose health insurance? And how important is that? Like the litany of things. So you just have to, it's knowing sort of roughly what you want, but then stepping back enough to look at, okay, here's how I have to get it. It's not just rampage. Yes, yeah. I suppose some people and maybe when you're 19 and you got nothing to lose and you're crazy and you have, you know, all of that youth in you, ram through all the walls. Yeah. But eventually, a wall is going to be a, a, a in front of you that you're not going to be able to exactly. ram through and you might have to think about it a little bit differently.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm glad you, you mentioned kids because I'm about to hit you with another much deeper and personal issue. Uh yeah. Well, uh, well, first, I'll ask you this as a as a preamble to what I'm going to discuss. Are there any are there things that you currently worry about regarding the looming uh, arrival of your children?
1: Be- so the one that there's sort of one kind of I would say broad one and then there's a lot of little ones. So the broad one is as as per everything that we've just discussed, I, I really have had a charmed existence these last 10 years. I really have Not to say I don't get hate, not to say, you know, eight years ago, I lost a whole chunk of my hair because of alopecia and didn't. And not to say I don't have. I I won't make a joke about it. G.I. Jane, I don't want to be slapped. I don't want to. Gad, I will literally reach through the screen and slap you if you dare. I understand. I understand. Legally, that's we're now forced to do it. Um, But I've had a pretty charmed existence. You know, David and I have had a great life. We've traveled when we wanted to travel. I do my August off the grid. Um, I invested my money wisely, so we've been afforded, a, you know, certain things, and we live in a beautiful house, and we have good friends, and we eat good food, and I we listen to m- music that we love, and like it's really been nice. And I do sense a little bit now that the window on that thing, in and of itself, is closing. And but but that's partly also why I want to have kids, why I think it's important to have kids. I don't have to tell you this as a father, but that that's obviously. You know, your life can always be about you and it can always be about your pleasures and your passions and all of those things. And maybe that does work forever, uh, or at least for a lifetime for a certain set of people. But David really wanted kids. Then I was on tour with Jordan where he was always talking about the importance of it for most people to live a fully actualized life. And then I really started thinking about my own life. So I am really looking forward to this next chapter and I, I suspect I'll be a pretty good dad. Um, and I'll need, I'm sure I'll need some advice from you on that. front. I'll I'll always Um, be around, but all the little thing, you know, the little things about how to parent or all that stuff, we're going to have a lot of help. And David's mom's going to be down here a lot. And his sister was a nanny who's going to help us out. My sister, who is also pregnant due the day before our first baby, uh, is she's pregnant with her third child and she lives near us. So we're going to have a great network of people that'll help with a lot of that. So I would say the main thing that's sort of rattling in my head at the moment is just you know, I've got a couple months left of the life that I've known uh, that has been pretty good. And then it will change and that's fine. Uh, but, you know, I'm about to go on tour also. So that sort of shortens the window right. of, of time just kind of here doing our thing. And I, I'm a little wistful for it, even though I haven't lost it yet. But I know it's that's what it's all about.
0: Can you and I don't mean to put you on the spot. Uh, and if you don't You're have an uh, can you because I told you I was going to share something about my experiences as a father that have hit me very hard recently. Can you guess, based on whatever you know of me, what that might be? And if you can't, that's fine. If you want to take a shot, that's fine. Otherwise, that, I'll just say it.
1: So the question is that something hit you recently as a father that, that has that caused me.
0: Is, that, no, that has caused me
1: unbearable pain. Oh God! Did one of your kids come out as a progressive? No, they're too young for that. <laughs> no, no, nothing
0: or... as bad as that. Come on, man! <laughs> I would
1: have killed myself if that were the case. Uh, uh, oh, wait, this is a great question. Okay, so is yeah, some, so, so something I, I, presented itself related to being a father that has has really rattled. I'll give me. you a hint. I'm yeah, an give
0: extremely me sentimental person. I'm I'm pathologically sentimental and romantic, romantic in the greatest sense of the term. So yeah, I don't know if that I, helps.
1: I, I mean, some you had some beautiful moment, obviously, with one of your children. So, or something. I mean, give me something. Okay. You give it me. Uh,
0: well, I'll, I'll just tell you then. Uh So I've always said, so, I, you know, as you, you know, I know, but you've never met them. We, we used to have Belgian shepherds in the house, uh, these big military dogs. Yeah. And uh, then we've I've ha- seen the pigs. You've seen the pigs. And of course you've met the children. And I've always said that what has always served as my solace and my protection, because I'm, also obviously very much in the public eye i I lead a very stressful life but then the minute that i'm in my what i call my purity bubble i'm untouchable i've got an amazing wife i've got fantastic kids i've got these gorgeous belgian shepherds that give you un, un, you know unconditional love i said there's only two dark clouds in my life and i guess i don't know if i'm going to talk about this in the current book or maybe in the next book uh Number 1 there's a dark cloud over the mortality of my dogs uh, as and you know oh, you, I, I, yeah. you recently lost uh, I mean not too recently but recently lost uh, Emma yeah Emma uh, yeah. and this the, the second one is the death of my children's innocence the death them growing up so that every minute that there was another birthday every minute that they you know I revelled in the role of the father of young children who is doting on them who is teaching them every single thing and now my daughter has entered the horrifying age of thirteen where <laughs> where i'm really I'm really getting personal here uh, where yeah. but this I'm, I'm hardly the first person to go through this but maybe given my personality it so the idea that your child it's no longer you that washes them they're no longer they no longer want to come on walks with you. They no longer want to sit, watch TV with you. It doesn't mean that they don't love you, but it means that they've moved to another developmental stage. Now, you often think of that realization stereotypically with a with a mom, you know, the, the mother can't bear that her children are growing up and she's no longer going to be breastfeeding them or changing their diapers. But there's something that hits around the teenage years where there really are becoming their own person which of course on the one hand you support you you want you, you want them to have those tools you don't want to help hold them captive in the in the cave but on the other hand your pathological if I could say love wants you to keep them and that frankly over the last bit has been terrible for me to the point where I've experienced feelings of sadness that I've never experienced I'm 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 pathologically sunny in my disposition. Luckily, you know, I'm a very happy person, but yet I would wake up certain days and my wife would say, well, what's wrong? I say, I can't bear that they're growing up. I simply can't bear it. So I hope you don't go through it, but prepare. If you go through it, you've heard it from me. It's not easy.
1: Well, it's interesting because I think in some ways you just explained exactly why Jordan talks about yep. being a father, being such a key part of life, because whatever you're going through right now uh, with your daughter, of course, it's obviously not the most fun thing in the world yeah. and you wake up and you don't know why and your wife has to look at you and, yeah. you know, get, get come on, get out of bed, Gad, let's go. But what the experience that you're having is obviously an important experience yeah. as a human being. That That's what I kept thinking as you were yeah. saying this, that what you're experiencing right now, you may not be loving it in the moment, but in a weird way, it's the exact thing you're supposed to yeah. experience, right? Like that's, it sounds pretty obvious. Yeah. When I was hearing you say, it, it was like, well, okay, maybe people think that's traditionally more of the way a woman might feel. And by the way, I, you know, there's Munchausen syndrome where a lot of these mothers end up projecting all oh, of the yeah. weird stuff on the child and then not letting them leave the cave in essence. Sure. Um, but I guess, uh, well, I guess I'll call you in about 13 years <laughs> and we can review Um, But but I guess ultimately the point would be that you have to go through that because, you know, when you're 90 years old and your kids have lived a good life and you're a grandfather or maybe a great grandfather, you'll go, I suspect you'll probably think it was all worth it because of this. Right?
0: Yeah. I, yeah, no, I, I completely agree. You know, I have a, I have a brother who, who's never, he's actually in, has been in California since 1984. Uh, he's never had children and he's 10 years older than me. And I've often wondered, uh, In line with what we're talking about here and what Jordan, what what you said about what Jordan tells people and so on about having children. He's never had children. He's never never even shown an inkling of wanting to have children. I can't help but think that that is a suboptimal life. And and again, I don't mean to be judgmental on his choices. Of course, we're all free to do whatever we want. But there is... I mean, there's truly nothing, and I, I know it sounds cliche and so on, but you will never understand love until you 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 see what it is to to love. I mean, and. Yes, and the abstract you have a sense, but wait till they're three and they look at you and say something that blows your mind. That blows your mind in ways that uh, listening to Jordan Peterson or Gatsad or Dave Rubin won't make you blow. Right? There's, what? Come it, it, on! I'm telling you know. It's, it's. I'll just give you a quick example, uh, not to toot the horn of my 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 son. He was laying down on the couch. We were watching. Don't tell anybody, we were watching Fox. It might have been Tucker Carlson uh I know it's I know it's disgusting. I, oh, I should be arrested. Please. our children yeah. should be taken away from me. Uh, we were watching Tucker Carlson, he was showing some bit about how many of the woke channels are now turning on biden uh and that they are themselves being critical of biden and my my son, who was half asleep, he's only ten years old, turns to me he goes this woman is saying this on CNN? Isn't that surprising, Daddy? And I said, what did you... So the fact... You've
1: done it, yet? You've done it. Exactly.
0: The sense of pride that I felt, I mean, not so much about the political content... But the fact that the 10-year-old had the insight to recognize that this woman on CNN, therefore he knows what CNN is, was criticizing Biden, and that seemed incongruous with what we would expect, blew my mind in ways that Yeah, so I hope you will experience many of those. uh... Dad,
1: if I if I understand fatherhood correctly, what you were supposed to do then was hand him fifty dollars and send him (laughs) out into the world. (laughs) I've done everything I can do. That's it. It's it's not. You are questioning what's going on on CNN. Have at it. Speaking of
0: uh, this, just came up organically. I'm I'm loving our conversation. I recently had the following situation happen, which I guess will relate back to your uh, latest book. Let me mention it again. Don't burn this country, surviving and thriving in our woke dystopia. Go out and buy it, pre-order it now. I think it drops April 12th, correct? April 12th, that's right. Go get it. Well, so I appeared as as you know, I appeared on uh, Tucker Carlson's long-form show in Florida when you and I met that the, yeah. the following week I appeared on a show. I mean, it's unbelievable how lovely he was. You know him personally. Uh, he met my entire family and the kind of affection and kind of effusive thing that he you know my kids fell in love with him because he just seemed like such a sweet jolly kind of jovial guy so then I on Twitter I put out a tweet just I cut out my family I never show my family I just cut out a picture of him and me and I said hey Tucker thank you so much for inviting me on it was a pleasure meeting you a cousin of mine, Dave. A cousin of mine. Yeah, there you go. You know where I'm going. I,
1: yeah, I, I know it. I know let it. me let me just yeah. say it Tell me that, anyway. Yeah. But I know it. Yeah.
0: But, no, but I'm. It's going to be a lot sadder than what you think. A cousin of mine who was my best friend growing up in Lebanon. We were inseparable. We went through specific episodes during the Lebanese civil war. He stuck at my house. He can't get to his house because the fighting on the green line uh, separating East and West Beirut is so brutal that he can't even go the five or 10 minutes to go. So he's stuck. He's sleeping several days in my house. So we experienced life or death situations together. He writes me, uh, I might get the specifics wrong, but you can still, I'm sure it's still up. Uh, Really? Have you no shame? How low can you go? Not privately publicly. So all of the experiences that bonded this gentleman and my, and we're blood cousins, he's my cousin, were removed, eradicated by the fact that I was associated to Tucker Carlson. Please explain it to us, Dr.
1: Rubin. Well, first off, I'm sorry to hear it. It sucks. It sucks. But I guarantee you, every single person listening to this right now has gone through some version of that. We've all gone through it. If you dare stand up for what you believe in, if you dare say something outside of you know, that, that woke orthodoxy or whatever you wanna call it, this will happen to you. And it will not only happen from your cousin, there are versions when it's mom to son, there are brother to brother, every, every crazy version of this exists. Um, David, who is not political, you know, he's only political by the nature that I'm political, so he's sort of in this world, He doesn't really do anything on social media, but uh, after January 6th, which obviously I had nothing to do with, I was not there nor promoted it or anything anything else, in the hysteria of the weeks after, he got the most psychotic, endlessly rambling text opus from one of his best childhood friends, saying that he's married to a terrorist, he will never speak to him again, uh, will never speak to David again. It had nothing to do with me, but putting that aside, it certainly had nothing to do with David. And this and these are the people who, again, purport to be open, the good tolerant, people, yeah. these are the tolerant people, the open people, blah, 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 blah. Rarely with an actual argument or anything else. Th- look, this is what politics has done to, to people. Um, this is what wokeness has done to people. This is what the parasite has done to people. And the best that we can do, there's actually nothing that you can do. I suspect I'm not gonna tell you something that you don't know right now, other than you can continue to be the best person that you can be. And you can continue to stand up for the things that you believe in, and you can continue to be a good husband and father. And then hopefully along the road, your cousin will eventually maybe come to his senses, maybe have his red pill moment, maybe something will happen and he will send you a private note, hopefully, and say, Gad, I'm actually sorry about that. Or maybe he won't fully apologize, but maybe he will come back to you. But there's no groveling that you can do for him. There's no explanation that you can give to him. There's nothing that you can say about Tucker Carlson that would qualm his imaginary fears. But Gad, you know this. I mean, there's a version of this in, I think, the modern liberal mind that is really, really perverse. I mean, one of the things that definitely moved me more right let's say or or more conservative all the words sort of don't mean anything but you know what i mean at this point one of the things that moved me was when i was around even what were thought of as sort of the sane rational liberals i never you're an exception to this and there obviously are some other exceptions for sure but the over time the people didn't seem that nice they didn't seem that generous of spirit or or happy or fun or anything and then I start talking to these scary right-wingers more, these Glenn Beck's and these Dennis Prager's and Ben Shapiro's, of whom I have some serious theological and personal disagreements with, and I consistently find them to be much nicer and open and more welcoming and fun and all of these things. That, that can't be totally disconnected from a worldview, right? Why do you the, think... The result. Sorry, forgive me for interrupting you, but so the capacity to be... Uh,
0: to succumb to tribal thinking is not necessarily reserved to one political aisle or the other, but yet what you're saying is exactly true, namely that the tribalism that you might otherwise see on the right doesn't seem to have the same valence of
1: poison as on the left. So I think there's a fundamental reason for that. Go. I, I, I... I would love to hear your thoughts on this as yeah. well, but I think there's a there's actually a very, it's in our face, very obvious reason for it. And the reason is that fundamentally, if you are on the right and you know why you're on the right, you believe in individual rights. yes, And if you believe in individual rights, that wherever you live, if you are there legally, that you are treated the same under the law as every single other person. Now put aside all the other political things that come attached with being on the right, or whether you're religious or not, or the rest of it. But if fundamentally the basic thing that we did better in the United States than any other country in the history of the world, we may be losing it now, but we've done it better for 250 plus years in the idea of the individual, the the sovereignty of the individual, that that's the basic building block for society. Well, then it will be very easy actually for you to be around people that you disagree with and still find their humanity. The difference fundamentally on the left, even for the quote unquote, sane liberals or whatever you want to call them, is there is more of a collectivist attitude and that collectivist attitude will sort of always drag you, this is a depressing reality for me to have come to, a a depressing conclusion, that will always sort of drag you to being more judgmental and being more uh, damning of the individual because you like consensus more, on the right, you like individuals more. And I think that basically is it. What do you think about that?
0: I, I love it. I think you're spot on. I'll add one additional layer. And I think with between your explanation and mine, I think it, it provides a complete explanation. So the word conservative, right, is, is tied to conserve. There's something to be conserved. Therefore, there is something when I wake up in the morning, in the status quo, for me to be happy about. You know, I live in Canada or the U.S., these are societies founded technically on individual liberties, although they've now changed. And I'd like to conserve many of these successful values. On the left, you're looking to reach some utopia, what I call unicornia. Therefore, the status quo is a bad thing, right? So think about it, and I, and I talk about this briefly in the book that I'm currently writing. So the Taliban blows up the Buddhist temple, uh, statues because that manifestation is not what we want a purely islamic world is the ultimate utopia so there is a venom of an anger against the current reality and i need to get to the next station which is called unicornia and anyone who doesn't share in that by definition, must be immoral because we all should agree that that's the ultimate place where we need to be. So therefore, the conservative is happy in the status quo. The the leftist is angry in the status quo. And that might explain some of the poison. What do you think of that?
1: I do think that that sort of gives like a holistic version of it because it's sort of the individual version of it and then the societal version on top of it. So it does kind of fit nicely into the puzzle. What I'm still trying to resolve, I suppose, is that for the, for, again, I always say the sane liberals, but whatever you want to call them, the last remaining non woke liberals, who in essence, they just repeat what conservatives say two years later. I mean, that's pretty much what they're all doing at this point. Um, What is it that is keeping them there? Um, What is it that uh, just keeps them in that calcified way of thinking? Because they're not fully collectivists. And I think they do usually understand some Tradition before them, and some of the the churning of generations and the blood that was spilled to free us, but they're still stuck in that thing. I'm sort of, in some ways, I'm kind of sick of thinking about it because I just think, okay, I, I was there and I got to blaze new trails, but I still there's still something there. And yeah. and for you in academia, you're surrounded probably wow. by a lot of these people who aren't totally uh, anesthetized, as you would say, as woke <laughs> leftists, but that probably are just still stuck in yeah. that half, half and half.
0: Yeah, I mean, I. For me and acad- i mean there, there are two great frustrations I experience in academia to kind of talk about our earlier point about the golden handcuffs and so on of course, there's all the the woke stuff, all the parasitic stuff that is terrible to go through because that's that's where these ideas are originally spawned I mean people say, oh you know uh, politics is downstream from culture well everything is downstream from academia it it starts in academia, then it enters culture and so on so So the fact that I exist in that ecosystem, on the one hand, makes it that I was ideally suited to write The Parasitic Mind because I've been in that shit for all these years. But there's a independent secondary reason why academia is frustrating me. And that is the the velocity or lack thereof of how things move in academia is terribly stifling for someone that is as you know, entrepreneurial in every possible way. I'm an intellectual entrepreneur, right? I, I started doing the, the long form show as an academic before any other, now all academics want to do that. But when I was doing it, it was looked down upon, right? I mean, this famous story that I tell is when I went to give a talk at Stanford, right? The Mecca of academia and uh, my my host, said to me, oh, I hear that, you know, you're friends with Joe Rogan, you're appearing on his show. You know, we don't condone that at Stanford. Uh, right? So, I mean, Imagine that you think yeah. it is beneath you to appear on a show that has more influence than all of the mainstream media. I mean, if you're an academic, aren't you in the in the in the business of trying to promulgate good ideas? And what better way is there than to go on Joe Rogan, if for no other reason, right? So I think that's the. So even if not a single woke issue had come out of academia, I would probably be sitting with you and still complaining about academia at the bureaucracy at this. Right? We hold. You know, we we will strike a task force to set up a committee to discuss a consulting group, to set up a secondary committee to decide if we should offer coffee in the faculty lounge. <laughs> well, we just spent $8 million of labor hours to decide if there should be a 25-cent cup. That's and, and that's not hyperbole. That's re, really how it is in academia. That's why some academics decide to leave academia and go and and found a you know, a separate institute outside of academia, where they can do their research unencumbered by the inertia of the bureaucracy. So I think that's another issue that is really weighing me down. You know, it's
1: interesting, I think, I think that's a great point, because it's also partly, I think, why I was able to create Locals, because I wanted to go and do and not just talk. But also, you know, with some of our former colleagues, when, when the whole IDW thing was blowing up, you know, i go to all these dinners with all of these people, and this is really, I don't mean this in judging or attacking anyone, I'm just broadly speaking. Um, you know, everyone would always be talking about Harvard and the endowment and the universities and this school and the Ivy League and all these. And I always found it so ridiculous because I don't come from that world. So I'm not demeaning, I'm not demeaning the importance of a proper education, obviously, but I'm a regular person from the regular world. So I would listen to them be talking about this stuff for hours as if this, as if what went on in the Harvard faculty room really was the most important thing. And as you said, uh, politics is downstream from culture. And if that does start in academia, I agree with that notion. But at this point related to all that, I don't think what Harvard thinks anymore is that important. And I felt like there was this layer of just being stuck in, well, how can we fix Harvard? And I was like, I don't care if Harvard goes down at this point. Well, it's a it's a factory of woke nonsense. It's a it's a factory actually of racism. Ask the Asian students who are trying to get into Harvard right now. So I just felt I didn't really care about that. I wanted to just move on to other things. Maybe that's also partly what what kept or keeps people in that spot.
0: Got you. Okay, we're almost out of time. I know you have a show at two. Last question. I can't remember if I asked you last time you were on the show, but it's still worth asking even if I did. Uh, One of my former professors, uh, psychology professors at Cornell, his... uh Ivy League uh, sorry to plug that in uh, uh, I it's my history I what went can I do to
1: uni Binghamton it's right down the road only 45 minutes away that's Although right you, Cornell it's the suicide capital of the world
0: if I'm not mistaken it, that that it has received that appellation you're right uh, so that professor his name is thomas gilovich he pioneered the psychology of regret the idea that we can there are two sources of regret we can regret things due to actions that we've taken. You know, I regret that I cheated on my wife and now my marriage has ended versus regret due to inaction. You know, I regret that I decided to become a physician. I only followed my dad's footsteps, but I always wanted to be an artist. And now I'm 50 something and I regret that I wasted my life on medicine. I hate it. Right. And now it turns out that over long-term regrets, most of us end up regretting things due to inactions rather than actions, mm-hmm. which is actually something that I get into in great detail in my Latest book. If I were to ask you today, 45 years old, what is your greatest source of regret? What would it be?
1: Ah, God, I love you. Because we do the same thing that we do off camera as we do on camera. And, and this is what it's all about. This this is why I don't have that much regret, honestly. Um, you know, I don't have regret, I don't think, related to inaction, actually. So I may be an That's outlaw wonderful. On this. I, I this. I think related to inaction, I've basically done the things that I should have done. Sometimes knowing where I was going, sometimes having no clues, sometimes being young and stupid, some of that. I would say the only regret that I have, that I am still trying to you know, really piece together and fit into my life somewhere, and I haven't talked about this that much and I I'm tr- really am trying to work through this. It's not, I don't know if this is exactly regret, but I have, you know, I beat myself up a lot over my sexuality for a huge portion of my life. I came out very late. When that, when you know, there's only room for one in the closet. That's why they call it a closet and not a gymnasium. There's room for one basically. And when you're when you're just alone in your thoughts, you know, it, it's not a good place to be. You end up acting out in all sorts of ways. I did drugs. I had you know relationships that were insane. All, all sorts of crazy stuff that I, that is not part of my life anymore. Um, But it does sit there as a part of me that I know. And you never I I, I talked to Jordan quite a bit about this, actually, personally, because it was like, how do you say how do you look back at a life and go, boy, there were there were those moments and I got out of them. But they don't leave you completely. You know what you know what you were. But I think you have to figure out how to piece those fully into your life. So in those brief moments these days where now I'm so busy all the time and and fulfilled in so many ways, but in those brief moments when you're sometimes sitting on the couch and some old thought, you know, something happened 30 years ago and it just rambles back into your brain and it's bouncing around and you're going, I'm just trying to watch TV, what's going on here? I'm still trying to piece that part of it together, that, that I did bang myself up really, and it was an inside job in retrospect, I guess is what I'm trying to say. That I, in retrospect, I didn't need to do it. Yes, maybe society wasn't so great to gaze 30 years ago, now you get an award for it and trophy and they'll pay you in Palm Springs and all sorts of other stuff. Um, but I wish maybe I had been a little more in tune with myself to, to grant myself a longer leash or whatever I was struggling with, something like
0: that. This is maybe going to give you goosebumps because as you were speaking, it gave me goosebumps. I have a section in that regret chapter where I talk about authenticity as a inoculation against regret. And so if I were to use that framework to what you just said, the fact that at those moments in your past, you didn't live your most authentic life is what led to you today experiencing it as regret, right? so it's exactly that. So the, the the life lesson here is live your most authentic life. And hopefully that curtails any future regret. Dave Rubin, I want to say goodbye to you offline before you need to go. What a pleasure. Yes. I wish we could have had another two hours. Uh, let me just mention the people, don't burn this country surviving and thriving in our woke dystopia. Go pre-order it now. Thank you so much, Dave. Great talking to you.
1: I'll be on again next week because we do this a lot. So. I love it. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, buddy.